sure that you feel welcome today. Uh, we are glad to have the team from Houghton here as well. Uh, we know there's a number of things that we do uh, as a church that takes a little bit of getting used to. And so uh, we just want to let you know that if you have any uh, questions or information that you're looking for, uh, straight out in the back there's an information desk and there's a few other tables that will be set up there as well. And you can just learn really what we are about as a church and what we kind of value and what we're excited about. And hopefully that will uh, get your blood pumping to some extent as to what God is at work uh, here doing. Uh, today we are in the book of Ephesians, so if you'll take out your Bibles and turn there. <clears throat> and so what we're uh, going to be working on, uh, that's not what we're working on this morning. Uh, sorry, I, listen, I've, I've spent enough time in the sound booth as the sound guy or the media guy that uh, I just need to let you know they're doing the very best that they can and I despise when people turn around and look in the back and say, I wish they just got that stuff right. They, they've got enough stressors going on up there without you guys looking back, all right? We're on the same team? Okay. That was for you, Dan. All right. 2008, this speech, this was the tail end of a speech by Barack Obama. I want you to hear this. It says, we've been asked to pause for a reality check. We've been warned against offering the people of this nation false hope. But in the unlikely story that is America, there has never been anything false about hope. When we have faced down impossible odds, when we've been told we're not ready or we shouldn't try or that we can't, generations of Americans have responded with a simple creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. It was a creed written into the founding documents that declared the destiny of a nation. Yes, we can. It was whispered by slaves and abolitionists as they blazed a trail towards freedom through the darkest of nights. Yes, we can. It was sung by immigrants as they stuck out from a distant shore and pioneers who pushed westward against unforgiving wilderness. Yes, we can. It was the call of workers who organized, women who reached for the ballot, a president who chose the moon as a new frontier, and a king who took us to the mountaintop and pointed the way to the promised land. Yes, we can to justice and equality. Yes, we can to opportunity and prosperity. Yes, we can heal this nation. Yes, we can repair this world. Yes, we can. In a world that's uh, overwhelmed with political rhetoric right now, and there's a lot going on in that atmosphere, in 2008, this memorable phrase of the election campaign was blazed on t-shirts all the way from uh, New York to LA to Oregon to Orlando, and there's all over the place, and he called it, Barack Obama called it a simple creed that sums up the spirit of the people, yes, we can. Well, before it was his campaign slogan, yes, we can was also the catchphrase of Bob the Builder. In 2001, uh, it started showing on American television. It is from uh, the United Kingdom. The show was really made popular there. It was this animated TV thing, and, and, and it was a pretty big deal. And in my house right now, all of a sudden, Bob the Builder is making a resurgence in the home. And my kids are walking around the house. Can we fix it? Yes, we can. I'm glad that we're going to fix everything this morning. I use that as an illustration to get us started because uh, how many of you have stayed up awake at night? Actually, all of us have done this tossing and turning because of a broken relationship. There is something within us that continues to crave relationships. And even though we often fail at them, when it's broken, we want to fix them. And despite our struggles, there's a glimmer of hope in the prospect of true, lasting community. 
Can we fix it? The first point I want you to see this morning, someone said yes we can, thank you for that down there. That's why I'm not running for president. The problem is we start as relationship breakers. In your bulletins this morning, we've started uh, putting out some uh, notes for you to be able to work through and some fill-ins there that hopefully that just allows you to engage and pay attention or draw little notes to your wife or your kids or whatever you're going to use it for. We want you to track along with us where this is coming from. So we start as relationship breakers. You remember back in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, uh, it said everything is said to be good. When, when God created, He said, and this is good. Chapter 2, verse 18, there's the first thing that he says that it was, it was not good. You know what it was? It was that man had been made and he was alone. He should not be alone. God declares man without a companion to be not good. There's more to this truth than just Adam being a lonely guy and needs a, needs a friend to hang out with. There's a lot more than that. Really, uh, even more than Adam's emotional and physical uh, needs, he has got this mandate And you and I have this mandate to live out and bear out the image of God. And God himself is in relationship. He made people for relationship. Relationship with himself and with the rest of creation. Yet as you and I are painfully aware, you and I do not live in a world where relationship and being in relationship together uh, is bringing glory to God. That's the world that we live in and that's the reality. Our society, our families, our marriages, and even our churches are often devastated by shattered and broken community. The first effect was this broken relationship between God and man there in the garden. What he had created to come together, uh, we started out by breaking. That relationship came apart and it's been damaged ever since. That fractured relationship between uh, that first couple and God himself. So God created us for relationship. Our sin, though, has has made us perpetual relationship breakers. At every turnaround, that's where we end up. No example of broken relationships in history is any greater than that of the Jews and the Gentiles. The Hatfields, the McCoys, Hamilton and Burr, uh, the Bills fans and the Patriots fans. Whatever the break is, the emotional feud between the Jews and the Gentiles could not hold a candle to it. So as William Barclay, he's a Scottish theologian, he writes this, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render to help a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was equivalent of death. I want to give you this as the baseline of where we're starting here this morning. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, again, turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We've been working through this book. We've been making some connections to what uh, relationships look like here uh, in, in, in uh, the first century church and what Paul is working through with the, the, those in Ephesus. Uh, but what you want to deal with this morning, though, is this broken relationship. As I said just a moment ago, we start as relationship breakers. That's your first fill-in. Beginning in verse 11. Will you read with me? 
Therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which has been made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The commonwealth of Israel, just side note, why does Virginia have to call themselves a commonwealth? Anyone from Virginia? Good. Oh, wait, there's one. All right. Well, the rest of us are states, right? Let's just, for some reason, they're the commonwealth. I don't know why we're calling this the commonwealth of Israel, but we're going to work our way through this. But you look back through the verses, will you circle the words that Paul uses to describe the Gentiles? Circle them. Check this out. He calls them uncircumcised. He calls them excluded. He calls them foreigners. He calls them without hope. He calls them without God. And then if you look at those statements, and you look at what's being implied here, not necessarily written in every case, but they're certainly implied in the passage, would be what the Jews see themselves as. This would be the answers to the same thing. They would call themselves circumcised. They would call themselves included. They would call themselves of Jesus' race. They would call themselves having hope because of the coming Messiah. They would say about themselves, we know God. Paul is doing here is he is bringing attention to the idea of the before and after with respect to the Gentiles uh, and how God accomplishes this part of his plan in creating the church to manifest his kingdom, to reflect his glory. That's what's going on here. So the before is that the Gentiles were then separated from God, excluded from God's kingdom, not party to anything that God was doing with his covenant and his people without hope and without any relationship to God. In short, they were in a bad way and seemingly outside of God's plan. This series we are calling God's plan. What is God's plan for us? The Gentiles, as they look at this, they're saying they are entirely excluded, removed, left out of God's plan. But secondly, Jesus mends what we have broken. Jesus mends what we have broken. The reason why this relationship is broken is because of your sin and mine. And the Gentiles, the reason why their relationship was broken is because of their sin. The reason why the Jewish relationship was broken between them and their father was because of their sin. And the only way that was going to be fixed was through Jesus Christ. Jesus mends what we have broken. Beginning in verse 13. But now in Christ... You who were once far off have been brought near to the blood of Christ. As you've seen so far in this letter, we've seen that God's plans included the Gentiles all along. That was His plan. This is the after. So after they came to Christ who brought them near to His blood, that is His death on the cross brings them near to Him. Those who were what? Once far off is the way that this passage digs in there. Those who are far away and now, and many times in the letters of Paul, he uses this language, now they are brought near. The Gentiles had this good news. They are no longer aliens. Their former hopelessness has been turned into joy. They were once separated from Christ and now they are in Christ through the salvation that he offered. So Jesus mends the broken relationship. Thirdly, Jesus breaks down the barriers that we have built. Jesus breaks down the barriers that we have built. Verse 14. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, 15, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, <coughs> that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, thereby killing the hostility. 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, there it is again, and peace to those who were now near. 18. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. Paul is announcing here that Christ is both the peace and the peacemaker. There's a big difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker, right? The peacekeeper just wants to keep everything quiet and make sure that nobody offends anybody and keep things down and keep things under control and just keep the peace. But no, Jesus is the peacemaker. He actively moved in this world that we live in, made a way for you and I. He actively pursued peace. By dying on the cross, he made a way for us to have a relationship with a holy God that we'd never had a chance to do that before. He also destroyed the barrier that exists between the Jews and the Gentiles. The divide is evident as uh, archaeological digs are going, and there's, there's much uh, explanation that goes into this, but uh, much like the Berlin Wall of the 20th century, when that was tore down, there was a wall very much like that dividing the Jewish people from the Gentiles in the temple. A white limestone slab, it's in the museum in Istanbul, Turkey, believed to come from that time period, was dug up in the early 20th century, and it said this. It was a sign that was on the wall, a marble slab written on the wall. It was a warning sign to Gentiles that said this. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. The wall separated in the Jewish mind the good from the bad, the clean from the unclean. If you look at Old Testament law and you, you realize what was going on, there's a purification that would happen. There was different segments within the temple all the way into the Holy of Holies, the place that they would only enter once a year. And that person, when he would enter, there would be a rope tied around his ankle in case he uh, dishonored God and he would die there in front of God and they would have to drag him out because they were too afraid to go in after him. Remember how the priest had those bells around the bottom of his garment? If those bells stop shaking, they know that there's a problem. Joe, what's going on in there? And they drag him out. So there's these layers of, of walls and barriers that would keep anyone from getting close. And you remember when Jesus died on the cross, when he gave up his spirit, what happened? That veil was torn from the top to the bottom, the Holy of Holies, that it was now available. It had been open to all. But the Jews still had this culture that said there's these walls, there's these barriers of how close that we're going to let the Gentiles come in. And don't think it's just a Jewish issue. All cultures have walls. Every culture has a way of defining itself with walls. There's the inside walls, those who we, we call basically the good people and those on the outside are bad. Now why do we do that? Psychologists will tell us that we do that because uh, we are looking for a way as a fundamental human desire to make ourselves feel good. Selfishness and pride and try to prove that we are better than everyone else. Why would we need to do that? Because we are insecure in our relationship with God himself. We start to 
to move things around and, and posture ourselves in ways that make ourselves feel better. And we expand that larger and larger and cultures start to do that. If we think we are better than others, that makes us more valuable as people. If we are better than the person next to us, then I have some intrinsic value that makes me more valuable, that you would want to get to know me or you would want to uh, do business with me more than the person next to me because I've set myself up as an insider. So we find things about ourselves that make us different from others, from another race or another culture. Our race is better, we're smarter, we're faster, we're better athletes, we show more courage in battle, we're more generous, uh, we've built a better country for ourselves, we have a better government system, we have uh, a more generous way of living, uh, we've been better people, our families are stronger, or maybe we treat women better, and we put around our culture this imaginary wall that distinguishes us from them. It makes us feel like we're better than those who are on the outside. Remember back to high school? Some of you, you would love to go back to high school and be the, the champion of the football team. I don't want to go back there. Do you remember the cafeteria? You go in the cafeteria and there's all the tables that would form the insiders, the not insiders, you know, the rest of us. But these tables would form, these tables that would have the athletes would be there, the, the musicians or the, uh, the smart kids that were, that were, you know, three years ahead in school and they've already got their SAT scores by the time they're in sixth grade, those kids. And some of you have those kids, good for you, but they sat at a special table with the other kids who also got the SAT scores. They have walls around themselves, they, they distinguish themselves differently from the other groups. In real practical ways, you start to see them dressing differently and doing things differently. The things they're involved is differently. They've built these walls. As adults, we don't necessarily grow out of that. You realize that. For some of you, it's a political persuasion. It's the people you agree with. You figure those are the smart people. Those are the educated people. Those are the people who aren't being misled. Uh, if you don't believe me, just watch The View or watch Sean Hannity or Keith Oberman and you really see that these people all assume that the people on the other side are absolute idiots. Why? Because there's walls. But Jesus says here, Paul says, talking about Jesus, verse 16, he says, He thereby kills the hostility. He breaks down walls itself. He takes on sin and death itself and actually kills that. He said, that is no place for me. Christ, Paul says, tore down the walls, giving us a whole new way of understanding who's on the inside and who's on the outside. None of us were on the inside. Do you get that? None of us could be in that inside. That veil had to be torn for any of us to enter the Holy of Holies. Sin's curse on me is that there are no good people and there are no bad people. There's no winners and losers. There's no one that has it together and those who are dysfunctional. No, there's only dead people who desperately need Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that is you and that is me. Jesus' blood cleanses us all alike. He did not simply bring the Jews and the Gentiles to the same playing field. He didn't just equal the level and level the playing field, but instead he made two previously divided groups into one. They would be as one. Here in Buffalo, there's a big movement, uh, One Buffalo. Some of you are familiar with it. 
uh, we've done some church planting things and, and some of my friends who are like working in network, they had used something that wasn't quite the words one buffalo, but it was something along those lines and they got a contact from a lawyer <laughs> that said, hey, that's a really special thing that we got going on between the Bills and the Sabres and you can't use it. What is the whole idea of one buffalo about? Well, Kim Pagula, a Houghton grad, by the way, you probably know that. She says, One Buffalo provides a link between Bills fans, Sabres fans, and the city of Buffalo. She says, We are all moving in the same direction. We are one team, one goal, one community, one family, one Buffalo. It is our goal to continue to contribute to the resurgence of Western New York, and we are very optimistic about the future. I think One Buffalo is fantastic. I think it's a great thing. And any of you who've been downtown or any of you who've seen what the Bagula's been able to do, it's, it's a fantastic thing. We're proud to be able to be connected with that. We're glad to see the city growing and all those type of things. But do you understand that One Buffalo is really a shadow or a reflection of really what God has called the church to be? When he says in verse 17, we're to access in one spirit to the Father. We are one. This is radical. This means that if you are in Christ, your identity is not as a Bills fan or a Sabres fan or a Patriots fan. Your identity is not whether you are a white man or a black man. Your identity is not found in whether you are a Democrat or whether you are a Republican. You are a new race. You are one in Christ. There's a radical difference from how we live our lives. Old things are gone away. All things have become new. You are a new race. You are a man or a woman found in Christ. Verse 19, Jesus calls us to be a church of relationship builders. It's a fill-in for you. Calls us to be a church of relationship builders. Verse 19, so then, so he's building an argument. Those things have happened before. So then, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul is writing that because of of Jesus' death, God's kingdom now has no strangers. There are no aliens. There are no second-class citizens. Paul is saying here that because of Christ's death, our Christians were made members of God's household. They were God's children. And Jews and Gentiles are all God's children. They are fellow citizens. They are fellow family members, equal in every way in the sight of God. Verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now the apostles and the prophets, they helped lay the foundations of the church. They did so in different ways. The apostles were those who knew Christ specifically. And those, they, they had this desire to, to expand the church. Because of the apostles, the church is no longer a hundred people there in, in Israel. Now it's worldwide because what they did as the apostles... The prophets of the Old Testament and those that are in the New Testament as well, their job, their responsibility is to say, thus saith the Lord, you're getting away from where you're supposed to be. In modern day there are prophets, not future telling prophets, but many prophets that say, okay, church, you have gotten away from what God has called you to do and what you are supposed to be. That is what the role of a prophet is. So the apostle's role is to go and and carry the gospel out. The prophet's job is to keep an alignment uh, uh, to what God has taught before. 
Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of that foundation. Yes, it's built on the prophets and it's built on the apostles, but it's built, Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the one who the church is built on. The word cornerstone is no doubt used here because it's a very important building tool of that day. Everything had to be aligned with the cornerstone, and you've seen this before, but if that stone is not there, it's very different. When we see it today, it's more of a, a cornerstone that just tells us when that building was built or, or what's happened there before. A cornerstone in that day was either a stone they brought in or a stone that existed, and on that stone, the rest of the building would be built. That was the true line. That was Everything else was going to have to be built around that cornerstone. Verse 21 in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The whole building is most likely referring here to the Jewish temple. He's, he's making an analogy with the temple. He's referring to the whole building, every part of it, being joined together carefully. Nothing is misshapen. There's nothing that is defective. There is nothing that is a, a piece or a part that wasn't supposed to be there. If you've ever had a home built for you before, I lived in South Carolina for almost 10 years and there was houses going up right and left. And you had to be very careful with the house that you bought because you could get a brand new home, but there were pieces that would come together and that house would be falling apart almost as soon as you got it because there were some defective pieces because they were coming together too quickly. But not here because Christ is in the building. The church is perfect and without blemish. The body will not be complete, however, until every person who believes in Christ is added to the church. Thus, Paul is referring to what we are experiencing today. Still the church going out and still being added to it is still in progress today. Verse 22. In Him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As a citizen of God's kingdom, every new believer is a new stone in this building that is being built. As such, again, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you are all part of the holy priesthood who offer up spiritual sacrifices in the temple. It looks entirely different now because of that veil has been torn. We are all part of that process. We no longer need a priest. We have that ability to go to God Himself because of what Jesus Christ has done as our mediator. We're being built together into a dwelling place for God's Spirit. So as we've moved through this last section of verses, there should be three analogies that you are noticing there. First, he says we are citizens of one kingdom. We're citizens of one kingdom. And then he moves another step. He says, not only are you citizens of one kingdom, you're like brothers and sisters in one family. And then he takes a third analogy. He says, oh, even more so, you are like the stones or the bricks in one building. Uh, so you see, as you notice, the analogy of believers are getting more and more intimately connected to one another. First you're part of a kingdom, then you're part of a family. Now you're part of a structure or a building where every part is more important than the others. They're now, bricks are stacked up on top of each other and cemented together. This passage is very challenging for most of us in the Americas. It's difficult for us to see this because sociologists who study spirituality in America say that it is coming apart. And there's a couple things that are true about us. First, there's an enormous spiritual hunger in America. We are at an all-time high. If you want to look through blogs, read through the articles in the newspaper, people are looking for things of spirituality. They just don't understand and realize that it is Jesus Christ that they're looking for. 
There's so many discussion groups that Campus Ambassadors do and Campus Crusade does. They're just a discussion group at UB about spiritual things and people just show up because they have a hunger for that. But at the same time, there's a move away from institutional religion or from church as a whole. In fact, Barna uh, just did a research poll uh, in the last about three years ago. It says 81% of Americans answered yes to this question. Do you believe that you can be a very good Christian without attending church? 81% of Americans would say, yes, absolutely. I believe I can be a perfect Christian in alignment with God himself and not attend church. The relationship's broken, friends. That relationship is broken. Something's broken. Can Jesus fix it? Yes, he can. He calls us to be a church of relationship builders. Why should you be involved in the church? Church members are like a pile of bricks that by itself, you are nothing more than a single brick. Some of you are closer to that brick than others. But when you put all of them together, what do you have? All the bricks come together, they are a temple. This is the Holy Spirit comes together and He meets with us there. It's not complete with all the others. It's just a brick. In the same way, none of us are complete in Christ without one another. Imagine if you have a couple that's struggling with their marriage. They need God's help. They're trying to work through things. <coughs> they pray, they ask God to help. They want God to literally zap them from heaven and fix their marriage on the spot. That would be plan A. But plan B says, or I guess I could be involved in a small group or I could see uh, people of the, another generation demonstrating what a marriage looks like in front of me and I could, I could experience some things there. I could take some things from that. But that uh, I would rather just come home and be all cheering and loving and selfless for one another just because God zapped it and made it happen. Or maybe there's a guy struggling with alcoholism or lust addiction. So he can have that same prayer. God, will you just take this away from me? Zap me and with a Holy Ghost taser gun, right? And I'm just going to be filled in the Holy Ghost. I'm no longer going to have these issues. Or maybe he could get involved in some type of recovery ministry in his church, a Christ-centered ministry where guys can support him and lead him through life and keep him accountable. What is he really looking for? He wants to be zapped. He wants to be able to choose option A. So plan A is God zaps you, he fixes everything. Or plan B is that maybe if I need some additional help, I'll utilize the church. You see that that's backwards? You see that that's entirely upside down? The revolutionary truth is the church is God's plan. The church is his plan A. The church is what he wants to use and he has demonstrated here this is how the Holy Spirit is going to work and is going to move is through the church. It's this work is involved here. It's where he dwells. So I challenge you to be involved. Be involved. How involved should you be? Well, based on what we've just described, basically maybe a better way to phrase that question would be uh, how involved do you want Christ to be in your life? How involved do you want Christ to be in your life? How well do you want to know Christ? And some of you have been on the sidelines for a very long time. Other ones of you are involved and you say, well, I'm glad that you're telling all of those people uh, that they need to get involved. All of a sudden, now you're getting back into the insiders and the outsiders. You see that. Those of you on the sidelines, you're only experiencing a fraction of God, what God would want you to know. 
what he's able to demonstrate for you when living that out? What does he want you to live out? What is the mission of the church? God is glorified by the salvation of a wide diversity of people. Our mission has to be to bring one body of vastly different people together from different backgrounds to worship one Jesus. One buffalo could mean an entirely different thing in this place and in this congregation because it could be a whole different place where there are different backgrounds all coming together. Our church should reflect a wide range of different backgrounds and a variety of things. Why? Because this is the only place that that would happen. And why would this be the only place that would happen? Because of Jesus Christ. God is not glorified by a big audience of white people coming together and, and seeing a good show. That's entertainment. God's church was meant to be something bigger. It's not a sporting event. God is glorified with people who otherwise have very little in common. They come together to worship and, and give God the glory more than they could ever do on their own. That's what being the church is all about. So what are the implications for you? I call you to be very active in the church. And for some of you that means many different things. Be very active in the church. Not because this church has it figured out. Friends, we don't have it figured out. If it's your first time here this morning and we didn't have our parking lot right or we didn't say hello to you or the bathrooms didn't have toilet paper, we don't have it figured out, okay? But when a variety of people come together for one purpose, not just getting together enjoying each other's company, but to worship God together, it's a very different place. Secondly, be open to other people who aren't like you. God has broken down those barriers. He sent Jesus, His Son, to break down those barriers, to tear down that wall, to remove those barriers from one another. Specifically, be involved with people who are not like you. We have a very unique situation here at Randall to have five generations present in one room. If you're not crossing ethnic lines, will you cross the age gaps? Find people who are not like you. Young people, find someone to mentor you. Couples, You've been married for six months. You got it figured out. I know that. There are people in this room that have given 60 years of being married to someone and they still like each other. If you're not taking advantage of that, you're a fool. Those of you who are older, consider uh, being intentional about mentoring the next generation. And bringing them along. And their style is going to be different and their methods are going to be different. But the only way that they will know what it means to live a life of faithfulness is if you share that with them. Is if you allow them in. You take the time to demonstrate that for them, in front of them, with them. What's that called? Discipleship. Discipleship. Fourthly, reach out to others who are far from God. This passage uses that terminology over and over and over again. Those who are far have been brought near. And we're not talking about inviting people to church. We're talking about getting them closer to Jesus Christ by whatever means necessary. Would you do that? And that's a lot bigger than Western New York. That's a bigger problem than we're going to handle here this morning, right? As a, as a world, there's, uh, I can't remember the numbers on it, but basically... There are unreached people groups all over this world that have never had an option, an opportunity to hear the gospel. Whether you're someone who goes yourself or you're someone who financially puts some things down so that uh, a younger person can go or a person who has more time to go, that type of thing, 
think about ways that we can connect with those who are overseas, those who are even in this, in this world. You know that the United States is now the third most unreached people group in the world. I was brought to the reality of that when my very close friend, his, his uh, wife that he married from Croatia, her father is a missionary from Croatia to the United States. I said, really? He said, yeah. This is the only place in the world where spirituality is in decline. I need to do something about it. So I'm here as a missionary. What is it going to be for you this morning? What are the implications for you? What is God calling you to do? If you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning, and I'm speaking of something that feels like insider language, I want to clarify that for you, that that is not my intention in the least bit. You know why? Because Christians were often a bad representation of Jesus Christ. But I want you to see what Scripture has laid out for us this morning of what the church ought to be. We should be one. We should be one in Christ. We should be unified. And if that is something that you find compelling, it's because the Holy Spirit is calling you to Himself. Because that's what He has designed the church to be. So what we're going to do this morning is the band is going to come here and they're going to actually play a song. Uh, you can call it special music. Just something to reflect on this morning. It is so good to have them here with us. And then in a moment, we'll have a time of offertory, of response. In the back of your pews, there are connection cards. And many of you uh, don't use these very often. But it's a way for you to respond to what God is doing in your life. Would you just write a note on there that says, Hey, hey I was encouraged when we prayed this morning. I, God is teaching me something through this, uh, this time. And, and then in the moment after that, we'll do our announcements and we'll have an offertory uh, where you can drop that connection card in there. It gives us ways to pray for you, to be encouraged by what God is doing in your life. So as the band plays this morning, I pray that your heart uh, would be challenged by what God is doing in your life. I pray that you would understand that we cannot fix it, but the Holy Spirit can. And through Jesus Christ, we can be one in Christ. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you so much. We pray that your word has spoken loud and clear this morning. Thank you for this book of Ephesians, the way that it challenges us, Lord, that it gets right to the heart of the issue. We pray that you have something very special for us here today. In Jesus' name, amen.